Hello. Welcome to Debrief, a King's Chambers podcast. My name is Nigel Poole. The Debrief podcast aims to provide an analysis of issues in the field of clinical negligence and healthcare law. We hope that it will be of use and interest to lawyers and non-lawyers alike. In this episode, we're going to look at the work of coroners and how they relate to deaths in healthcare settings in particular. And I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague at King's Chambers, Rachel Galloway. Rachel, I say colleague, uh, but not for much longer because you're leaving Chambers and leaving the bar to become a full-time assistant coroner. I know that's a role you've undertaken in a part-time capacity for some years. Yes. Um, I'm not suggesting there's anything strange about people who want to become coroners, but what is it about the role that appeals to you? Well, I think it's because, Nigel, there's a different emphasis um, in the coronial context from civil claims and litigation, which, of course, is the majority of the work that we carry out at the bar. And an inquest is investigatory in nature. It's fact-finding. The emphasis is on by what means the deceased has come by his or her death. And within that context, you can have a range of of different cases. So the the, the more straightforward, shorter inquest-type hearings, which uh, some of which will even be done on paper, some industrial disease-type cases, for instance, uh, where you won't have any properly interested parties present in court at all. Up until dealing with Article 2 jury inquests, which may go on for a number of weeks. So it's a very varied role. Um, the emphasis, of course, is sadly upon how somebody has come by their death, but it, it's also very interesting in terms of the matters that you look into and, and discuss during the course of a hearing. Well, I hope to talk to you about some of the differences between inquests and civil litigation. But um, one of one of one difference we might begin with is the appointment process. So, yes. judges in the county court and high court are um, interviewed, uh, and the interview process is through the judicial appointments commission. But that doesn't apply to coroners, does it? It doesn't. Not at the moment. So coroners are still appointed by the local authority, um, and the selection process is run through the local authority. There is very similar application process in terms of the forms that you complete and the competency criteria, for instance, is very similar to that which will apply in other areas of the judiciary. But ultimately, the local authority will appoint coroners. They are then responsible for paying coroners, um, but you are not employed by the local authority. Right. So, and the jurisdiction of the coroner is geographical then, is it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And... Um, each coroner then is employed by a different local authority for their geographical well, area. Well, they're paid by that local authority mm, for that area right. and um, they're not technically employed because, of course, also um, you may have cases that will involve local authorities. Um, so it, there would be a conflict there. But um, whether or not that resolves the conflict is, is, of course, another matter. But at the moment, it's a local authority still that will appoint coroners. Um, if it's an assistant coroner or an area coroner, of course, with the involvement also of the senior coroner in the recruitment process. Um, so what is the role of a 
coroner? What, what is what is your job? The role of the coroner is to investigate how someone has come by their death. And under Section 1 of the Coroners and Justice Act of 2009, it sets out that where a coroner who's made aware that the body of the deceased person is within that coroner's area, so that's the area that that particular coroner is responsible for, um, they must, as soon as practicable, conduct an investigation into that person's death in three circumstances. If they have reason to suspect that, firstly, the deceased died a violent or unnatural death, or, um, secondly, that the cause of death is unknown, or, thirdly, that the deceased died whilst in custody or otherwise in state detention. Right. And the coroner has to ad- address or answer certain specific questions as part of the yes. inquest process. Um, who the deceased was? Yes. Where and when they died? Yes. And how they died? Have yes. I missed anything out? No. Yeah. And the, the how can lead to some of the well-known conclusions used to be called verdicts. Yes. Such as misadventure, Accident, suicide, suicide, natural causes, yes. Yeah. Well, I've always struggled with the difference between accident and misadventure. I don't think that technically they are the same conclusion um, and for statistical purposes they are um, the same conclusion and there was um, some case law a few years ago suggesting that misadventure was um, no longer really to be used but it is still used. I think that the, the misadventure will be the appropriate conclusion when there is, let's say there's maybe recognised complications of surgery although often that will now be a narrative um, okay, but an accident is somebody falling over in the care home, fracturing their hip. Um, that's gone on to lead to their death. Um, misadventure is an unintended consequence of a deliberate act. So perhaps somebody who's undergoing surgery, it's intended that that deliberate act is obviously going to save their life. But sadly, there's a, a complication which arises, which then leads to their death. Yeah. That context might fit better with misadventure. But statistically, they are the same conclusion. So in the past, when I've represented um, interested parties at inquests, Mm -hmm. um, it's always understood that the standard of proof for reaching certain conclusions was, you know, the the balance of probabilities, except for unlawful killing and suicide, suicide. where it was, you know, the criminal standard beyond reasonable doubt. But, um, well, that's now in... That's now in in doubt, and the current law is, following the case of Morn, is that certainly in the context of suicide, um, the standard of proof, in fact, that case they say it always has been, the standard of proof has been the balance of probabilities in respect of then returning that conclusion. Um, There's dicta as well in that case that suggests that it would also apply in the context of unlawful killing. Um, but there's no um, decided case then in, in respect of that. That case is subject to appeal. Many coroners are considering at the moment, when they're considering particularly suicide, the two standards of proof. Um, so they consider it to the criminal standard. Are they sure that he intended to end his own life? And then they consider on the balance of probabilities. Um, and that's because in case the law changes back again yeah. after the appeal um, yeah. to say that actually it was always the criminal standard of proof. Right. So if we could just go back to the, the beginning of a process leading to an inquest yeah. and and particular focus on deaths in a healthcare setting, be it a hospital or a care home or perhaps someone who's being cared for in the community. Yes. How is it decided which of those deaths should be investigated by 
a coroner and and which don't need okay in terms of referral or in terms of when they have been referred what uh, what you well, take into how are account? they how do you as a, a coroner as an assistant coroner how do you as it were, get, get hold of get hold the investigation of those cases. into it. Yeah. So um, with a hospital death, the doctor will refer cases if they have reason to suspect. Again, it's the same criteria in respect of whether or not there's a mm. violent or unnatural death or the cause of death is unknown. So often you'll get a referral from hospital where doctors have been trying to treat a patient. They haven't got to the bottom of what the problem was and the patient sadly died. That will be then referred to the coroner because they cannot offer a cause of death. They cannot say what the, what the cause of death likely was. Um, and so it will need to come to the coroner for further investigation. Investigation. In the care home context, often um, it will be the GP um, or the home directly that will refer to, um, to the coroner. The GP will always have to certify a death and give a cause of death. If they can't do that, it will be referred to the coroner because they cannot offer a cause of death. Right. Now, you mentioned already the 2009 Act. Yes. And it provided for a role for a new role. As for, I understand it, for medical examiners. For medical examiners, yes. That's, that's not yet in force. No, no, as I understand it, it's not yet in force. Um, I believe it is coming into force in terms of the role of medical examiners. And a medical examiner, as I understand it, with medical examining officers also supporting the medical examiner, will work in the hospitals. They will review the deaths that have occurred in the hospital setting and they will refer then the matters to the coroner which need to be referred rather than at the moment relying upon individual doctors within the setting to refer cases um, to to the coroner. And it, it is thought that actually that will increase the number of cases that are referred to the coroner um, from those at present. Um, that's not in force yet, but it's um, anticipated that that will, that will happen. I suppose one part of a inquest process that people will be aware of uh, is is postmortem yes do, do coroners order postmortems or? they do yeah. so the the body is under the control of the coroner when it's in, within lying within um, that coronial area so postmortems will be carried out in a number of different circumstances um, and they can be different types of postmortems. So you can have invasive postmortems. You can also now often have postmortem by way of a CT scan, um, which is carried out in some areas now as the main way of carrying out postmortem examinations in all deaths. But a, a coroner will review a case that may be no offered cause of death from the doctor. Um, it may be a completely unexpected death. In no circumstances, a postmortem will be ordered in order to find out. Uh, what the uh, cause of death is and also in cases of um, deaths in custody um, there will usually be a home office post-mortem carried out in respect of those and also home office post-mortems are carried out and ordered by the coroner even in police investigations where there's questions of homicide so it's still the coroner's role in that context to order the post-mortem examination mm. and then looking at how evidence is is gathered for, first of all Documentary evidence. What, yes. what uh, what's the usual process for obtaining uh, and then disclosing to any interested parties 
documentary evidence, such as medical records. Such as medical records. So after an, uh, now, when an inquest is opened, um, directions will be set down by the coroner in respect of um, documentation to be obtained. Um, sometimes that will include the GP records, often it does. Um, if um, it's a hospital-related death with, with concerns regarding the hospital treatment, the hospital records will also be requested. But reports, so statements or reports, will also be requested from clinicians involved in the care um, and they will usually be written by either the clinician themselves or with the support of legal um, in-house legal support at the trust uh, the hospital trust um, GPs will often write their own statements and simply um, send them into court they are frequently asked to uh, provide statements in respect of the history uh, regarding a deceased person and family members will often be co- contacted by either the police coroner's officer or the coroner's officer um, to take a statement from them either in person or over the phone um, and uh, that's the opportunity then for families usually to indicate if they have any concerns So you've talked about taking witness statements from various individuals. Yes. Um, Can the interested parties try to persuade a coroner to take statements from other witnesses? They can. So the way to go about doing that, because quite often now in a more straightforward or appears to be a more straightforward type of inquest case, is it will be opened, directions will be set down and a hearing will be listed for final inquest within six months. In more more complex cases, which may involve um, deaths under a state um, in, in prison or under section, there will usually be a pre-inquest review listed. And at the pre-inquest review hearing, those issues can be raised by the family, by interested parties in terms of other evidence um, that they uh, may want to ask the coroner to consider or other statements to be obtained. In a case where it's simply been listed for inquest within a few months perhaps of opening, the properly interested party or the person who who has concerns in respect of further evidence being required um, can contact the coroner's officer the family will usually have the contact details for the coroner's officer that they can advise of their concerns. And indeed, there is a duty on persons to provide any relevant information to the coroner. So if they are in possession of any evidence of which the coroner might not be aware, then there is a duty to provide that information to the court for the coroner to consider. Would that extend to an internal investigation, a serious untoward incident yes. report or something of that kind that the trust has... Um, instigated and obtained. Yes, so in nearly um, in numerous cases that I deal with, I will have an untoward incident report from the um, trust and internal investigation. It will be disclosed prior to the inquest, and the author of that report will be called if necessary um, to give evidence. And we do have reports where there have been no findings of any concerns at all. Um, and sometimes the family and uh, you will review the, the case and say, well, there are no concerns here. There's no need to call that witness. We can adduce that into evidence under what we call Rule 23 of the Coroner's Rules. Um, but in many cases, that person will be called in terms of lessons to be learned for the future. Right. What about the use of uh, independent expert reports? So yes. what, can you as a coroner commission yes. an independent expert to look at all the evidence and to advise you as yes. to um, you know certain findings or certain matters or concerns that might arise? 
So often you can rely upon the medical practitioners that have um, that are going to be coming to court to give evidence, but it does need to be borne in mind that those practitioners may have a vested interest, um, they are not independent, and if there are significant concerns from the family in respect of matters which may have contributed to the death that an expert could assist upon, um, then in some circumstances, and it doesn't happen regularly, but in more complex cases, it will be appropriate for a coroner to instruct an expert. Right. So in terms of interested parties, yes. you you will always have the family as an interested party. Always, In yes. a healthcare setting, you might have the trust that yes. ran the hospital as an interested party. And might you also have individual healthcare practitioners yes. or professionals as interested parties as well? So sometimes general practitioners, um, if they are an interested party, they'll be represented separately. Um, but within the hospital trust, usually everybody is represented by a representative from the hospital trust. There are occasions, and I've represented um, myself as counsel, um, hospital trusts and individuals, um, if there's a conflict between potentially two individuals um, involved in the care of the deceased, then one of them will then usually be separately represented. Yeah. And um, how long would an inquest tend to... This is a piece of string question, yes. isn't it? But in a healthcare setting, typically, or if, it is, if there is a typical length of hearing, but... Yeah. Would it be half a day, three days, a week? So there's not a typical length of hearing in a healthcare type of inquest. So if you're dealing with physical issues leading to the death, be it surgery, complications of surgery, those sorts of issues, if it's a recognised complication of surgery type of case, then usually you're looking at an inquest of about two or three hours. Um, and witnesses called in order to explain how that complication has occurred. In other more complex cases where uh, potentially you're dealing with pressure sores, for example, um, and there's a lot of involvement from care home, from different places where the person has been, um, and it's not clear where the pressure sores have arisen and whether or not there's been um, <coughs> care issues that have contributed to the development of those pressure sores, you can find a case will be going on for one, two, maybe three days. Um, those can be a lot, a lot lengthier. And then in the mental health context, um, you will have some much more complex inquests sometimes within that context of persons either under a section or voluntary patients who have taken their own lives. Often you'll be dealing um, with a case with a jury where Article 2 is in engaged. Having a jury will necessarily um, lengthen any case because you've got uh, up to 11 people that you need to explain the case to and uh, and um, you need to have regular breaks when you're in a jury. Um, and those cases can, can last, uh, I think the longest one that I've been involved with lasts for eight, eight weeks, yeah. but they can last for even longer than that. So what proportion of cases, in your experience, would be heard with a jury? Not very many. Yeah. So it's a low... It's, it's, it's yeah. m much more common for the coroner to... Much hear more the inquest by themselves, but yes, and then there's some cases where you would have a discretion. So there are mandatory cases where you have to deal uh, mm. sit with a jury. So that's under seven section seven two of the Criminal Justice Act of two thousand and nine, and those are um, cases where where the deaths occurred due to an act or omission of a police officer, deaths in, in state detention, no, those sorts of issues. And then you've got the section seven three where you've got a discretion in order to sit with a jury. And one of the matters you take into account when you have that discretion, of course, is the wishes of the family, the wishes of the properly interested parties. But something a family will get from a case 
um, with um, coroners sitting alone that they don't get from a jury is they get full reasons, full factual findings at the end, whereas a jury has matters left to them. They will leave maybe a short-form conclusion and a narrative conclusion, and that is it. Yes, of course, they have the summing up that the coroner's given to the jury, but there's recent case law, Tyrrell, I think it is in particular, that says that's actually something that coroners should take into account when deciding whether or not to exercise their discretion to sit with a jury because uh, a family may get more answers, actually, when they've got a coroner sitting alone. Mm. So you mentioned Article 2. Yes. But that's Article 2 of the European Convention of Human Rights. That's correct. The right to life. Yes. And that can be, quotes, engaged uh, in certain inquests. In certain inquests. cases, yes. Um, when? Okay, so when art- well, first of all, when Article Two is engaged, it broadens the scope of the inquest. So you suddenly you're then looking at cases uh, by, by what means and in what circumstances somebody's come by their death, and then at the end of, of of the hearing, you would have usually a narrative conclusion which has judgmental findings and words such as inappropriate, all of those sorts of words that you wouldn't use in a normal inquest can be used in the ultimate conclusion. Article 2 is engaged only in certain circumstances. Well, if we think about a healthcare setting, I mean, there are cases like Savage and Raybone, which yes. show that Article 2 may be engaged where someone is either detained under the Mental Health Act or they're otherwise under the control of uh, yeah. health carers. Yeah. Um, and there's a real and immediate risk to, to life. And, yeah. and arguably that steps weren't taken to protect protect their lives. So it might be engaged in those circumstances. Yes, exactly. But there was a recent case, wasn't there, this year, Parkinson, yes. which followed another European uh, case, Fernandez, Fernandez, where very much the steer was that in in a healthcare setting where it's, if I can put it this way, physical uh, management or management of phys- a physical condition. Physical condition. That ev- even very vulnerable patients, it may be that Article 2 is not frequently engaged and it certainly isn't where there is what might be called mere negligence yes um, which was clear from the case more. of Raybone historically yeah. not so Raybone and also um, Powell, Powell historically yeah. um, and yes Fernandez and Parkinson both as I understand it deal with physical illnesses and the, the judgments focus upon the fact that that's not akin to state detention they're there for the treatment of physical illness um, and they're distinguished from the cases of Savage and Raybone which are dealing with patients within the mental health context. Yeah. So in practice, though, is an Article 2 inquest, does it feel much different from a thorough non-Article 2 inquest? So the actual inquest itself, hearing the evidence, the questions which are asked, is not that much different. Um, You may permit questioning or you may go wider in your questioning in an Article 2 inquest case, looking at the circumstances... But generally speaking, if a full and fearless inquiry is being carried out in any more complicated case, and there are many complicated cases where Article 2 is not engaged, then really um, the matters that are looked into during the course of the inquest can be quite similar. Ultimately, the difference is when you come to the conclusion, because in a non-Article 2 case, you're looking at short-form conclusions, potentially a narrative conclusion, but the narrative conclusion um, uses neutral language, there's no mentions of failures, of inappropriate... It cannot be judgmental. Whereas in an Article 2 case, um, there is a duty um, and to one of the matters that will be considered in the conclusion, in a narrative conclusion, 
is um, judgmental matters. And and the, recently in a case with, with a jury, they will be given, or I will give them as the coroner, a list of words that they could use in, in the course of that, that no. conclusion. So it's different in terms of the ultimate conclusion, mm-hmm. but the actual inquest itself, the questions of the witnesses, uh, the, there's not much difference. Yeah. So in questioning witnesses... So, so- as a trial lawyer doing civil litigation, but also sometimes uh, representing interested parties yeah. at inquest, I always find at inquest you're treading this line between um, you know, not tending to show that some identifiable individual has a civil liability or a criminal liability yeah. uh, and, go, and stepping over that line, always have an eye on the coroner to stop me asking a certain question if, if they think I've gone too far because a coroner mustn't um, draw a conclusion or, or, or make a conclusion that would tend to show someone's well, liability. Is that, it, that right? A breach of duty and negligence are not a matter for the coroner's court and um, a finding of any criminal responsibility in respect of a named person is also not a matter for the coroner's court. Yeah. There could ultimately be a finding of unlawful killing in respect of an unnamed person. Yeah. Um, that happens usually after a number of police inquiries that have taken place and all criminal processes have been exhausted and it's very unusual uh, for that to be the, then the ultimate finding. Yeah. So um, a witness might be advised that they don't have to answer certain yes. questions because they might incriminate they them. They might that incriminate right? themselves. Yeah. So um, I have had experience in cases where you will uh, a question may be asked either by you or by one of the interested parties that is a proper question in a context in terms of whether or not the witness is telling the truth. In those circumstances, a warning would be given by me um, as the coroner to that witness in terms of self-incrimination. Um, the fact they don't need to answer that question, but if they do answer that question... Um, they must answer it truthfully. Yeah. And thinking about the conclusion, after the evidence is finished, do the interested parties or their representatives have an opportunity to address the coroner on the conclusions that the coroner might reach or indeed on some of the evidence that's being given? They do. They have the opportunity to address the coroner on the law. Um, And historically, um, coroners would perhaps be more narrow um, in respect of how how they interpret that because it's very difficult to address a coroner on the law in a complete vacuum with no uh, reference to the evidence at all. Um, You don't address the coroner in respect of findings of facts that the coroner uh, would make. That's a matter solely for the coroner. But in terms of helping with legal submissions, so a submission about what conclusion should be left, um, whether or not the evidence supports such a conclusion, you'll necessarily have to refer to the evidence in order to make those submissions. Yeah. Can I just ask you about one particular conclusion or rider to conclusions yes. that can arise quite often in a healthcare setting? It's yes. neglect. Neglect, yes. Well, neglect isn't negligence. Is it, it isn't, no. It's How not. is it different? So it's a gross failing um, to provide basic medical attention to a person um, in a uh, dependent position who clearly requires it. And it's, um, it's a completely different concept, really, to negligence. Um, it's not used in very many cases. Um, some coroners will perhaps return neglect more often than others. But it's always in, in combination with another conclusion. You wouldn't just get a neglect conclusion on its own. Um, it may be um, a narrative conclusion would be left saying it's also contributed to by neglect. And, and you're looking at significant failings 
um, in the healthcare setting. So a patient potentially that's come into hospital clearly needs life-saving treatment. It's very obvious that, that that's required and they're just sat in the bed and nobody does anything about it and they die 24 hours later. That's the type of case you're talking about in respect of, of a finding of neglect. Um, you've already touched on this, but after the conclusion is reached and all the certification is, is done, they, yeah. there is a rule allowing coroners to... Um, report concerns or to yes. or to raise those concerns. Can you just tell us about how that's done? We call them Regulation 28 reports, Prevention mm-hmm. of Future Death reports. So it's now a mandatory duty on all coroners um, during the course of an inquest. If, if something comes to light, um, which in your view has a risk then of, of uh, future deaths occurring, you must take action in order to address the person concerned um, as to um, that concern that you have. You don't make any recommendation in respect of how they should deal with that concern. Um, that's not a matter for the coroner at all. It's simply a matter of um, explaining the evidence that was heard, the concern, and then raising it with the person um, directly um, that can then take action. And they have to write back and within, I think it's eight weeks, 56 days, in order to advise the coroner as to what steps have been taken. So these coroner's reports available on- online? They are. I think so any, any member of the public can have a look and see what so reports have been raised. All Regulation 28 Prevention of Future Death reports are sent to the Chief Coroner now. Yeah. It's mandatory that they are sent. Um, and the Chief Coroner's office will upload those um, after review onto, um, onto online. So they're all accessible through, um, mm. through the internet. Now, I, I don't expect you as a full-time assistant coroner to express a view necessarily one way or another on this, but you've raised several uh, points of the process where yes. I've been thinking, how do people manage without representation? Now, yes. I, and I know this is quite a hot topic, but how often are there families or bereaved families at healthcare inquests who don't have legal representation? Very often Mm. and it's in cases where Article 2 is engaged so usually the cases where you're dealing with patients under a section or prison context um, where you will have um, made a determination that Article 2 is engaged um, and then they can get Legal Services Commission funding in those circumstances and will have representation um, but there can be lengthy, complex uh, medical inquests which uh, families, unless they're going to pay for somebody to represent them or if they can find someone to represent them on a pro bono basis, they will represent themselves. And it is very usual for all of the other properly interested parties in that context, and there may be a number of them, so the hospital trust, the mental health trust, um, uh, the hospital trust, GPs, um, uh, just to name a few, they, they could all be represented, but the family uh, the family would not be. But it's part of the coroner's role to ensure that um, relevant questions are put. Um, they should help the family in those circumstances when they have questions, um, if they're having difficulties, to frame the relevant questions. So there is a duty upon the coroner to help families in that situation. But yes, um, they often will not be represented at an inquest hearing. Well, Rachel, thank you. Uh, I wish you best in this new stage of your career. Thank you. And and thank you for taking time to explain the coroner's role so well. Uh, This and other debrief podcasts are available on the King's Chambers website. Just go to kingschambers.com and click on the resources and training tab and then the tab for podcasts. 
And uh, I, some time ago, I produced a video with some suggestions for non-lawyers who might have to represent their family at an inquest. Uh, you can find that at the tab on nigelpoolqc.blogspot.com. Just click on the Helps with Video tab. And you can obtain fact sheets for any episode of Debrief by emailing podcast at kingschambers.com. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.